three, two, one. Start the show. Hello, my friends, Rob Orman here, and you are listening to the Stimulus Podcast, where we break down strategies, ideas, and tactics to live and work with intent. Don't just suck it up. Think differently. Stimulus is a production of Orman Physician Coaching, where we help docs work through burnout, overwhelm, career quagmires, leadership challenges, maladaptive habits, and behaviors. It's professional growth and personal development. If you want to learn more about what we do, you can find it all at our new website, robwarman.com. That's also where you'll find the complete show notes for this or any other episode. Learn more about one-on-one coaching. And if you are coaching curious, sign up for a free coaching discovery session. On today's show, two methods for debriefing, decompressing, and processing immediately after a hard case. Now, this episode was inspired by many conversations I've had with clients as well as other physicians who have told me about their challenging cases and then nothing. Nothing happened. It was just on to the next case and the next and the next. And there's just no processing, no debriefing. Or you know, maybe there was some sort of debrief, but it happened in a way that was felt to be suboptimal. You know, there's many schools of thought and techniques on debriefing. And today we dive into the info method and the hot offload. And the conversations that you're about to hear come from the perspective of acute care medicine, right? But that's, that's what I know. That's the people I know, but it can apply anywhere in any field of medicine or really any line of work for that matter. Talking through what just happened in a sometimes structured, but always intentional way. And as a proviso, before we get into this, there are a few intense moments described in this episode. So just be aware of that considering who's listening. All right, proviso provisioned. Two guests today. In the second half, you're going to hear Ashley Liebig. Ashley is a HEMS flight nurse and helicopter rescue specialist with Austin Travis County Starflight. And prior to her flight and rescue career, Ashley served in the U.S. Army as a combat medic with the 101st Airborne Division. And first, we're going to hear from Stuart Rose. Stuart is an emergency physician who's practiced all over the world, currently in Calgary, Canada, and is known as an expert in the area of debriefing. He is lead author of one of the seminal debriefing papers, Charge Nurse Facilitated Clinical Debriefing in the Emergency Department, which will inform some of the conversation you're about to hear. All right. Here we go. Stuart Rose on the debrief. Let's get to a case. And this happened recently. I had a resuscitation that was taxing. It was taxing emotionally. It was taxing physically. The staff was stressed. I was stressed. It went on for hours and hours. You know, we had other patients to dispo and take care of, but we couldn't leave this room. And eventually patient died we were all feeling pretty low, depleted. I left there and I I had to go dispo a patient with pneumonia, runny nose and ankle sprain. And I just was feeling so much doubt, doubt on my ability, the doubt on myself as an emergency physician. It was probably one of the more challenging resuscitations I've run in a while. And the team was the A-team, excellent communication and people were giving ideas during this, but you know, we felt pretty low and I felt like I personally needed a hot offload. My friend Ashley Liebig 
told me that term that right afterwards, just unload, get the group together in a huddle and unload. So I gathered the team in the break room where we have lunch and we all sat in a circle and I'm thinking to myself, how do I hot offload this? So I said, I want to have a debrief, just offload what just happened because I think we're all tired, we're all depleted. And that was really stressful. And I said, I'll start. That was the most stressful resuscitation I have ever been through in my life. And I'm feeling pretty low right now with how, how things went down. And then I went around the room. It was almost like free association from everybody in the room. There were the nurses who were in the room, the charge nurse who had come in and out, people who had been doing CPR, et cetera. And there were some things where people say, hey, I think I did this well, or I was pretty pissed off at this other team who we were kind of involved with later on in the situation. Essentially, the charge nurse who is, I mean, he's so experienced said, hey, you know, I think that, you know, when you're bringing up these issues of being pissed off at somebody or this other department, let's leave that for another day. Or if you're going to try to change a system in this meeting, let's leave that for another day. Just tell us what you thought about all of this. So we went around the room. I thanked everybody and I thought they did a fantastic job in it. And I expressed that. And I left that room thinking, was that good? Was that bad? Was that ugly? Is that how they're supposed to go? Because I didn't have any idea of how to structure a debrief. So let's first take a look at that ersatz debrief that we just did at the spur of the moment. And then how would you restructure it into a way that's been found to work? Maybe that worked, but a way that you have found works. Thanks for sharing that. Because every time I talk to people about clinical debriefing, people have a story to tell, as we all do, no matter how long you've been doing this for. It sounds like you did a great job. Just the fact that you're opening it up to the whole team, that the whole team is there. So it's an interprofessional experience from people who were there and that you started up talking about your experience and how humble you were in what happened. And I think that can set a tone for the rest of the group to feel comfortable revealing what they were feeling as well. Sometimes there's risks to the team lead going first, and that can sometimes change the makeup of the debriefing. But I think from what you're telling me, that sounded like that was a great start to someone who doesn't do this frequently. Let's start there, that team lead going first. And I wondered, should I just start talking here? When I did that, does that then set up some power dynamic? Does that then set the tone that they feel they're allowed to give rather than just keeping it open-ended for them? It certainly will set up a power dynamic. And when we debrief in simulation, you can see debriefings turn around based on one person's contribution. If you start off and you set the tone as a leader that people respect, as a leader that people know to be genuine and interested in who they are and what they really feel, then I think that can be a good place to start. If you're maybe not that type of person and you never really talk to staff, and then all of a sudden you have this experience and now you want to debrief and explore people's feelings, I think that may be set up to not get the real view of what people actually think. It can go either way. It could be good. It could be bad. And you have developed or presented a different paradigm of how to do this, which the charge nurse facilitated debrief. Why the charge nurse? There's some really good debriefing tools out there. Paul Mullen and the discern tool. Wonderful. For me, it was more a case of I knew about some of the tools. I do a lot of sim debriefing. I'm a fairly experienced eMERGE physician, and I really wanted to debrief my own cases. And yet somehow that wasn't happening. So even with all this motivation, I realized in my mind, there needs to be a system change 
So there's an expectation from the whole team that we need to do this. And this is important to patient care. What did you see as the main obstacle as to why things weren't happening? You're a debrief leader, yet you're having trouble putting that into action in the department. So I think it's the same as what we all feel when we try and do this. Time pressures, you know, we'd finish a recess and then I'd have three or four patients waiting to be seen. They've now been waiting for an hour and a half. They need that knee x-ray report and I've got to go back and do that stuff. And then when I say, okay, let's try and do this in a couple of minutes, the different team members are on a different schedule. And by the time I get back, we can't get it together. And, and then I become wrapped up in the next patient. And at the end of the shift, I'm like, oh, we should have done it. But now everybody's gone. You're the rate limiting step for everything that has to happen in that ED. Exactly. And then when I kind of get my time right, then one of the nurses away or people are involved in a new case. And so because we were taking a little while to do it, things start to happen and it's very difficult to get it back at that point. I really felt that somebody else needed to take on the responsibility of cognitively offloading what I was trying to do and creating an opportunity for that debriefing to take place. And so that was where I thought of the charge nurse because I'm pretty sure it's the same for all emerge departments. Charge nurses generally, they experience people, they know the staff, they understand the logistics of the department, and often charge nurses are debriefing cases anyway. And so when I approached our charge nurse group to say, what do you think about taking this on? They were very positive. And they're also leaders. I mean, you're, you're a charge nurse. Absolutely. You, you are leading at all times. They are the mainstay, where as physicians, as nurses, as RTs, the full interprofessional team, they're the oil that keeps things smooth and running. And the charge nurse doesn't usually have patient responsibilities. That is another key feature. So they are able to then cognitively not get loaded with another patient and they can more easily, not to say that they're not busy and not that they have huge responsibilities, but if if they put that on their list, they can often bring us all back and I'll get a page after 10, 15 minutes. They'll say debrief and recess by four. That page has gone to everybody and then we meet. The debriefing is much more likely to happen. The charge nurse is now the lead of this. And the lead is the person who makes sure everyone gets together, makes sure that it happens. Did it start happening after that? The uptake has been really good, but it's a challenge to maintain. Initially, after this initial pilot rolled out, in the first six months, we did 50 debriefings. There's set criteria for the debriefing, a level one trauma, there'll be a case of CPR, a case involving intubation, but then there's a requested category. What that's done is it's brought in some really interesting cases like a normal vaginal delivery in the ED, which went really well, but everybody, we don't do it that frequently. I don't know about you, but we don't. It's been a while. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But nonetheless, 50 cases in six months. And then the rate is going along anywhere from one to 10 a month at the moment. And that's so often the case when you have something new implemented. Everybody does it, everybody does it. And then it requires a champion to keep the fire going, to keep reminding people because you kind of have regression to the mean. We'll kind of get back into the old patterns and habits that we did rather than this is always on the forefront. And the same with the process of how it would work to get people to constantly follow the process, which is part of of the safety of the clinical debriefing process. So let's talk about that, the structure of how a debrief goes. When I did it, it was just, here's everything I'm feeling inside. Next, give it to me. Okay. Which is good, which is good. It's really good to do that. I, I try to take a more structured approach because the charge nurse group that started this off are novice facilitators. So it's not something that they do on a regular basis. And so I wanted to try and make it as easy as possible for a novice to be able to take this on and feel comfortable doing it. And that is why it is quite tightly scripted. If you follow 
the process, you can cover all the steps that need to take place in a really quick time. Rather than keeping it open, as we often do in simulation, where you start off saying, how did that feel? Because once you ask someone how that felt, then you deserve to listen to the answer. And in this clinical environment where we don't have time, that can really reduce the number of debriefings that people will be willing, I think, to do. So tell me about info, I-N-F-O, and then how does that play out during that debrief? Info is a mnemonic. It stands for immediate. What we found is that the sooner we do this after a case, the better, the more likely it is to happen. Not for personal assessment. So the idea is that it's more of a systems, addressing systems issues. Fast, the median debriefing is about 10 minutes, can be anywhere as quick as four, and then it can extend a little bit further than that. It's facilitated by the charge nurse on a plus delta, which means what did we do well, what would we do differently next time type of basis. And then an opportunity to ask questions. So for example, if we took your case that you just described, what would then happen after your case, you'd go off and you'd try and get disposition for your patients who've been waiting. And you'd get a page to say, Rob, let's meet in the tea room. The whole team would get that page. Everybody, the unit clerks, the EMS, if they were still there, everybody. People would arrive and then using the script, the charge nurse would welcome everybody, set a timekeeper because we want to keep track of how long is it taking, and then go through something called the basic assumption which refers to the fact that it'll be read out to say, okay, guys, thanks for coming. We are all here and we acknowledge that our basic assumption is we really want to do well, we're well-trained, and we want to do our best for this patient. Kind of set the tone. And that's said every time. That is the ideal. Okay. It doesn't get said every time in reality, but that's the ideal, right? Because we want people just to reset and be curious. And this is a concept from Jenny Rudolph. We want to be curious. We want to remind people to reset and just be curious as to what happened. And then the idea is the charge nurse then will then say, we're just going to repeat the info mnemonic as a pre-briefing to set the expectations of what's about to follow. Set the rules, essentially. And we'll go through the mnemonic briefly and then say, anybody got any questions? Nobody has any questions. They say, okay, well, Gloria, the, the nurse assistant, tell me what went well for you in this case and what would you do differently next time? But this is not for personal assessment. No. This is systems, but when I hear that, I think, well, boy, I didn't know how to use that machine. I didn't really remember the doses of this or something like that, which I think people would say, which is almost a personal assessment. Going back each time and talking about the fact that it's not for personal assessment is part of promoting safety in this debriefing. It's part of allowing people the option, if this does become very personal, of opting out by saying, look, we've kind of agreed in loose terms to the infrastructure, which is not for personal assessment. What happens in reality is that in a case, for example, we had a case where one of the nurses had some trouble mixing up a norepinephrine infusion. And when they came to the debriefing, the nurse said, what I would do differently is mix up this norepinephrine infusion in a much better way. I felt that I was slow to get it going, and I felt that compromised the care of the patient. At which point, the other team members chimed in to say, we noticed that, and what we would do differently next time is to come across and help you. And so something that could have gone potentially quite badly actually turned out to be a really positive part of that debriefing. And I think it depends on your team and how comfortable the team is with each other as to how that process may work, the culture of your department. And that's why starting slow and using these rules as much as possible can help to establish the culture which can then open it up to allow teams to talk about emotional aspects of debriefing, various different parts of the debriefing process and the aftermath that is not part of this rigid structure. So you go around the room seeking that, and then 
opportunity to ask questions. Is that just like an open to the general room? Does anyone have any questions? So you go through the process. Everybody does what went well for them. What would they do differently? And then at the end, it's kind of a free-for-all open-ended question. Are there any other questions? And then often the person that went first and has now heard some different opinions through the room will then say, oh, I wondered why we didn't give another dose of epi. Can somebody maybe clarify that? Part of the problem with doing a hot debriefing or immediate debriefing is that people don't have time to reflect, to really consider the full details of what transpired. And even sometimes just in that 10 minutes when people have an opportunity to hear their team members' perspective, different thoughts can occur. And does the leader, oftentimes it's the physician or sometimes it's the the lead nurse in there, do they go last so that they're not coloring the tone of the room? Generally, that is the process. It's not set in stone and it doesn't always happen. And if you have a leader that's really invested in the team, then it's probably not that important. But generally, the team lead will, will go last. And then what's the script for closing? How do you end the session? So the script for closing will be, anybody got any questions, any other thoughts, comments, additions? Okay, thanks, guys. Refer back to our counseling services that we have. So it'll be going through the same process. We have counseling services available, both to physicians, nurses, to the whole team. This is the number, or just please contact me if you're interested or you think you may need some counseling, and we can get you set up with that. Normal process will be followed. So we're going to report this on our reporting system for something that, if equipment or something didn't go that well. So someone's taking notes on what issues might be. So the charge nurse or the charge nurse can delegate a scrub, and this is being completed on the info form. So you've got it structured, spreadsheeted on all these things. And then you say, thank you very much. Anybody anything else? Okay, thanks for your time. We're done. That's so different than how I have ended debriefs. I'll say, all right, let's get back out there. Keep kicking ass because you're a great team. It's a little less structured. (laughs) (laughs) If it has the same effect, then I think it's pretty good. I might might have to add that in there if you you don't mind. (laughs) Of course. (laughs) So a, a couple things on that. Most of the time in the ED, this is a team that we work with I don't know. I mean, it's a team that you're going to do hundreds of recesses with. For the most part, we get along pretty well. But sometimes there's little conflicts and there's different leadership styles, let's say. What happens in this debrief if someone says, and I'll give a couple examples, there's like an ad hominem attack. Someone says, you know, I really don't appreciate how condescending you are as a team leader. I feel you really belittle me. These debriefings are voluntary. And so what may happen is if there really is an expectation or people are really uncomfortable with this happening, it may just not happen at this point. The more debriefings we do, the more the culture is changing for people to be more accepting of receiving and giving feedback. And so those situations may at this point not happen. If they do happen, then the idea is that the charge nurse uses the tool to bring people back to focus. So an example would be to say, Bob, I heard you say that. And as you know, info is not about personal assessment. It's about team and systems assessment and improvements. And so we're just going to back it off from that line of of debriefing, if that's okay. Some people might say, well, that doesn't really get to the root of this issue within this team. And you're ignoring the elephant in the room, which is absolutely possibility. This is not a perfect tool. This is an attempt at starting that process. A lot of that has to do with the leadership of the charge nurse who says, I think that's an issue we need to address, but let's take that to another forum. Like your charge nurse did in your resuscitation. Right. Who said, when when someone said, that team is a bunch of 
blockheads. <laughs> and the charger said, you know, I hear what you're saying. I'll write that down and we'll bring that to the section meeting. Yeah. And we'll, we'll discuss that conflict. And I thought, whoa, that was great. Because I could see that person during that recess thinking. And I could actually see the t- other team looking at my team and everybody thinking, you're all just the biggest bunch of idiots. And I'm thinking, we're all just taking care of this patient. But you could just see the interdepartmental hatred and the tribalism. I was glad someone brought that up and even happier that the charge nurse said, we totally need to discuss this later. That just illustrates the charging has been doing this, a lot of the charging has been doing this really well for years. And, and so this is now giving, giving the charging group more of a structure to keep on doing this and to bring in charging that perhaps wouldn't have been as eloquent and as effective to the process to say, it's okay, here's a structure. And that's part of that safety is getting the whole group, the whole ED team. And what do you mean by safety? What does safety mean in this? One of the issues with debriefing, with talking about people's emotions, talking about people's performance after the event, either in simulation or even perhaps even more high stakes in a clinical environment, is a concept of psychological safety. So does the group feel that they are able to really talk about things that are important to them without having somebody else intervene or say something that would really be upsetting? And so the concept of establishing psychological safety of saying, we really are curious to know what happened. Mm-hmm. We're not judging. And if we do judge, it's more in, I'm just going to see what my thoughts are about that action. And I, I want to understand what happened from your perspective. One criticism of this is that in the simulation mindset, when you do a debrief there, how did this feel? The emotion, the feeling is the thing that needs to be unloaded first, but this has just kind of nuts and bolts systems issues. So how do you address that? In the simulation world, there's this concept of emotions before cognition, with the basic idea being that you need to get that emotional load off your shoulders, off your chest, before you'll be open to learning anything or actually remembering anything that may then follow. And that's where I'm going to go back to the info process and say, it's not perfect. I purposefully did not introduce an emotional component to it for two main reasons. The one being, I think if I'm asking a facilitator to ask that question, then the facilitator should have an adequate amount of training and experience to be able to appropriately respond to whatever the answer is for that question. So much harder and and so much longer. As it should. I mean, it should take longer. If you want to explore people's emotions appropriately and properly, then it will take longer. And that's a good thing. But I don't want that to be a limiter to people actually talking about any aspect of debriefing. Because I think if these were taking 45 minutes, you're never going to be able to do that. As teams become more comfortable with each other, there have been some very emotional debriefings. As the culture evolves, the team is taking it to that emotional level. And if it doesn't become a very emotional debriefing, it does establish a relationship with the team that spoke together for 10 minutes after the recess. So when you see that team member the next day, two days later, they may reveal stuff to you that is related to their reflections on that debriefing that would never have been revealed in the past. Who gets to come to this? Is it just the team that was involved in the care and the, and the EMS, or can anyone in the ED come to this? It's the people that were involved in the resuscitation. That could be four people. It could be 25 people. But this is talking about bringing in EMS who still were there, the unit clerks, the ECG tech. And those people are forgotten. 100%. But they're still in there. And they have an insight as a team member that is valuable. 
I'll tell you about a debriefing that we had where we done a, a cardiac arrest case. Unfortunately, it didn't go too well. And we had the whole team, probably seven or eight people. When we started doing the debriefing, the nurse attending, I, I don't know what equivalent would be in the US, but these are people that do CPR, they move patients around, super helpful people. They really want to do their best when they do CPR and they do a great job. And the nursing attendant started off first, what went well? Well, the communication was pretty good. And what would you do differently? Well, I couldn't do CPR. And it turned out they couldn't do CPR because Every time we did an ultrasound or put an ultrasound on the heart or in the epigastric area, we left the gel on the chest. And so when the, the NA started doing CPR, they were sliding off the chest the whole time. And nobody else is noticing this. We all task focused on what we're doing. And then they get it back together again. And then someone would check to see if, if there was any cardiac activity and leave more gel on the chest. This was a revelation to all of us at the debriefing. So two hours later, I kid you not, another recess, almost the same team. Almost the same case. Ultrasound goes on. The person doing the ultrasound put the towel down immediately afterwards, did a little wipe, left the towel on the chest, looked at the NA and stepped back. We do another debriefing. The NA's like, oh, thank you. That was much better. As a team, we were like, whew. What's the most important thing in a code? High quality CPR. Absolutely. (laughs) And this is just going by, right? We we never asked, never been volunteered. And I guess, why would it? Opening up, giving the rest of the team a voice has been really valuable. Stuart Rose, thank you so much. Rob, thank you very much for having me. I'm going to take a break here for just a second because we're about to get into our second half, but I wanted to touch on something that Stuart mentioned there, safety. He mentioned safety several times when talking about the general concept of debriefing, psychological safety, and starting with the basic assumption. I really love that idea, basic assumption, maybe because it sounds so much like the prime directive from Star Trek, I don't know. I just love it. And it was adapted from the Center for Medical Simulation in Boston. And it's something Stuart learned from its director, Dr. Jenny Rudolph. And the basic assumption sets the tone of the debrief. Quote, we believe that everyone participating in patient care is intelligent, capable, cares about doing their best, and wants to improve. End quote. Now, in a debrief, emotions can be high. And, you know, you can, you can have anger and frustration. And that's why the basic assumption isn't, hey, you're all a bunch of idiots. The basic assumption is, hey, we all want to do a good job. Now on to the second part of our episode, which is digging deeper into something that was mentioned earlier on in our chat with Stuart, which was the hot offload. Ashley Liebig, our guest for this, Hems flight nurse and former combat medic, is widely known for her advocacy and teaching in the field of debriefing. And the way that she does this, or at least the concept that she's going to discuss in just a moment, was born out of tragedy, out of war, where as a medic, she saw the consequences of not debriefing and holding it in. Here she is. I think the thing that really continues to sort of give me nightmares in times is recalling the looks of the soldiers when they came back and really being helpless to do anything for them. So they would come back from a mission where someone was injured or something went wrong and they would sit in sort of a shock state, um, just sort of gazed off in the distance with little to no interaction. And those are the moments that I really wrestle with 
Did I say the right thing? Could I have done something different? The military at that time did something very wrong and intended to be good, but was ultimately wrong in, in that they rushed them to debrief or they sent them right back out. And so in that rush debrief, they would bring an outsider from another camp or from the main base in Baghdad, hospital in Baghdad, who would usually ultimately end up writing prescriptions for depression or sleep. And then they would leave. Really, what I've learned is what those guys needed was basically a hot offload. They needed a quick moment of diffusion. They needed to get out the facts of what happened. And then they needed to be left alone, but together. Meaning they didn't need to debrief in that time frame. They needed water, food. They needed to be dry and warm. And they needed to be in the same space with each other, with their colleagues, with their friends, with their buddies. And then they they just needed some time. And the pressure to continue the mission or to get things done or to try and check a box, we really did a, dis- a huge disservice to them in rushing that process for many of them. I want to get a little bit into that rush debrief versus the hot offload. It sounds like they're kind of similar in that right after the event, you talk about it. But what's the nuanced difference in the way that you saw that it could be done right versus the way that it was done wrong in a way that could potentially be detrimental? So our memory does things to protect us, right? So we don't always have great memories of events, especially traumatic events. We don't always have a full visual field. We don't always hear things correctly. So a lot of times in that quick hot offload, those guys are just diffusing the process. They're saying what they saw, tasted, touched, smelled immediately. And so they're reaffirming those memories or a lot of them are wrestling with some sort of guilt. I should have, could have, would have, whereas their buddy can look at them and go, no, dude, that couldn't have happened. You couldn't have reached him. You couldn't have done this. You couldn't have done that. And so it reaffirms some of those thought processes that are just incorrect that your mind's built on its own. In a formal debrief, that happens later after the brain's had time to process and and kick back some of those memories and doing something very, very quickly, sort of reframing those initial thought processes is probably not the most ideal time for them. They're not in the right state to receive any information and they're really not in a great state to output any information. Dealing with that immediate guilt or this is what I saw or did or just enough of a debrief to give from an operational standpoint what happened. And then we needed to let them be for a little while and make sure that all of their hierarchical needs are being met because you're not in a good place if you're if you're shivering because you're cold or you're hungry or you're thirsty and exhausted. These guys were so fatigued. And so we needed to give them an opportunity to let their brain rest and recover before we did a full official debrief with them. And that's a mistake that we make in healthcare right now. We either don't do anything at all and we let people walk away or go back to the next mission and we can't get a gauge for where people are or we rush through the process and don't give people the opportunity to have a little bit of time. I want to stay on that idea because I think about something that could be so analogous. You have a group of soldiers and they're on a mission and a couple of people have killed and a couple of people are dismembered and alive and the mission doesn't go as planned and there's a tremendous amount of stress and it's just maybe considered a failure. And you're in the emergency department or you're you know in the helicopter and you've got a, a critical child and you're trying to resuscitate them and there's many people involved in the team. And the child dies. Saying it almost brings tears to my eyes, just thinking about the times that that's happened. And the whole team is just ridden with depressed feelings, with guilt, with things that I I could have, should have done. And, And granted, in those situations, everybody is trying their hardest and trying to bring out their greatest clinical excellence. But sometimes it does not go the way you want. People die. When a child dies, 
extremely, extremely difficult to deal with. And then you've got the family to deal with. I would add to that, not only does it not go the way you want, it also doesn't go the way that you saw it necessarily. What happened is not always, your perception of the situation is not always correct. Yes. Okay. So taking the concept of that hot offload and, you know, we can do a debrief a day or two later in a classroom when we're all chill. What does that hot offload look like after that death, after that bad outcome, when the team is just, you know, you're going to have to go back and take care of other patients, but you are stunned. So how would that look in a modern day emergency department? What it looks like to me effectively is bad thing happens. Team leader gets group of people together who participated in bad things and goes through what they saw. We moved in, you know, the patient was XYZ. These were the vital signs. We did this thing. We did this thing. We did this thing. People have the opportunity to say they saw this. They smelled this. They noticed this. They said this. No one was listening. Whatever their individual perceptions are of what happened. And so they're quickly sharing the facts or what they see as the facts in their limited view. And so um, you're sort of opening the picture up for everyone, what, what they may have missed or what they didn't see. And then a quick check-in. Are you okay to continue on this shift? It's okay if you're not. Then just making sure that if they are ready to move forward, that we give them the tools to do that. Make sure that they that they feel safe. They feel like they can cognitively function. And sometimes as a team, you know, sort of as a seniors or as a team leaders, we have to be prepared to pull our folks. When they're not functioning well, if they're too fatigued, if they're too distraught, we have to be comfortable enough with them to say, hey, listen, I know you think you're all right, but I have real, some real concerns about your ability to function. Take 30 minutes or whatever it is and chill out for a bit, and then we'll revisit. Tough conversations, right? Super confronting. The idea is not to put anyone in a position where they're, um, they feel blame, where they feel like they've done something wrong. It's just to state the facts, acknowledge for everyone that, yeah, that sucks. And it's okay if you don't think it sucks and it wasn't terrible for you. And it's okay if you do think it sucks and here are the resources. And we're going to talk about this, you know, this case after the fact. Say you're the team leader. People are kind of huddled in this group and talking. And one, one of the providers says, oh, I couldn't get that IV. I couldn't get IV. I kept trying. And oh man, you know what? If had I gone to a IO line sooner, things would have been different. We could have gotten these medications in, man. I just, I feel like I caused all this. We can't spend a lot of time in could have, should have, would have, because we don't know if things would have been different if there was an IO or if we would have gone there sooner. And maybe next time we will, and we will go sooner. But spending the time thinking about what we could have done or should have done isn't tremendously helpful. How we can improve in the future, sure. But in that immediate moment, I think is not the time to look for how we're going to do things differently in the future. I think it's the opportunity to, to check in with everyone, make sure they're okay, and then focus on those things in a debrief after people have really had a, a little bit of time. But I think some reassurance in that situation, right? We've all been there. We've all done that. We've all been in the situation where we feel like we could have done something differently and maybe the outcome was different, but a little empathy for your colleagues in that scenario, for sure. Ooh, la la. It's intense. It is intense. This is not a unicorn and rainbows moment. You know, I mean, after these cases, in these moments, you are depleted mentally, physically, emotionally, spiritually. Regardless of how you do this, whether it's debriefing the way Stuart described it or the way Ashley described it, or it's something else, there's a, it's not like one answer for this. After a hard case or a traumatic moment, or even something was just really complex or involved, 
Doesn't have to be traumatic or, or hard. Debrief. Get your team together. Offload. Walk through. And there is a belief, we touched on this just a little bit in our conversations today, a belief in debriefing that emotions come before facts. Debriefing emotions comes before debriefing facts. Because let's be honest, even if you are thinking hard after a challenging case, you know, you're thinking it's just heavily fact-laden, chances are it is going to be covered with a blanket of emotion. How you apply that, it's up to you, whatever method you use, but just something to consider. Now, let's just Let's just change the trajectory of our conversation in the last few minutes and end on something a little more inspirational and aspirational. Here's Ashley one more time. Closing question. What is your call to action? It can be a skill, a practice, mindset, quote, philosophy, whatever, something to encapsulate Ashley Liebig's lessons learned and how to live an excellent life. Every day before my daughter goes to school, we promise that today we will work hard, be respectful, be kind. If we could really all do those things every day, but it works. The thing about all of this and all of the stress and all of the things that we are managing in our work lives, a lot of the burnout that people feel and um, the stress that they think they feel or that they do feel has to do with the relationships in those places. So I think if we could look after each other a little better and be a little bit better to one another, that we may find that some of that stress starts to go away and some of that burnout starts to go away. We could all do with a little bit more kindness. Work hard, be respectful, be be kind. kind. Thanks, Ashley. Thanks. And that is it for today. For complete and detailed show notes to subscribe to our newsletter or learn more about our one-on-one coaching program, you can find us and all of that at roborman.com. If you dig the show, hit the subscribe button in your podcatcher so you don't have to use your vital brain space to remember to download a new one. It'll just pop right up like a pogo stick on a hot summer day. Until the next time, my friends, be well and keep on rocking.